0: The title of today's sermon is The Fifth Kingdom, and it's taken from Daniel 7, verses 15 to 28. Well, we're studying the book of Daniel chapter 7. And as I said last week, I'll repeat it to you. I am a dispensationalist. I don't believe the Lord Jesus Christ came back in 70 A.D. I don't believe he's reigning in the hearts of believers today. I believe he's coming back to install a kingdom that will last for a thousand years and he will rule and reign over it as king in Jerusalem. And I sense that might be soon. I think we're living in the last days. I'm in pretty good company, aren't I, with Paul and a few others? So that's the basis of uh, our interpretation of this chapter. We approach it from a dispensationalist, pre-tribulational, pre-millennial view. And God bless them. Anyone who wants to think differently than that, they'll find out when they get to heaven at the rapture that they've been wrong. And they'll thank God for it because they won't have to go through the wrath that is coming. But I believe that what we believe as a church is the correct interpretation of Scripture. And I'm staking my life on it. So I'd like to preach this very important text to you, sharing with it the things that I've discovered as I've studied it for the past week. So let us ask God to guide and direct our thinking as we make our way through the last portion of Daniel 7. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much that you've given us this book by Daniel, this ancient book that reveals history yet to come. Help us, Father, as we understand our place on the prophetic timetable, to understand it, to grasp its meaning, and to see the import of it. Help us, Lord, not to leave this place without a heart for evangelism, to tell the lost that Jesus is soon returning and what that means for them. Thank God that you have promised to save us from the wrath to come, that there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for our hope, the rapture of the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as I grow older, I find a lot of stuff that passes as being new and relevant, but I just find it to be kind of silly, even stupid. Let me give you an example of what I mean. A few years ago, I heard about this new profession called life coaching. At the, t- at the time, I had no idea what a life coach was. I bet you don't either. So I looked online, and I found that there are three life coaches listed in Lacey. But I wanted to know what a life coach does. Not wanting to look foolish, I asked Google. And I learned that a life coach is a person trained to counsel and encourage their clients. They counsel people in matters of personal and career issues. Now, I thought, you should get your advice from your spouse, Your parents, your grandparents, or people that you trust like a pastor or your doctor. But I guess our culture no longer trusts the advice of such people. Now you choose to pay a life coach. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, after all. They've taken 30 credit hours at the local college, taught by a professor to tell them how other people should live their lives. That makes total sense to me. A few years ago, I was shocked to learn that a 20-something-year-old single woman that Sue and I were both acquainted with was a certified life coach from a biblical seminary in Oregon. She actually charged real people real money for her to give them advice on how to live. To be honest with you, I wouldn't have trusted her to babysit my grandchildren. But then that's just me. I think this whole idea is silly. And truthfully, I'd never go to such a person for advice, let alone follow it. There's a lot of similar things that are just as silly going on in the church today. Some folks are obsessed with gifts. Have you ever asked or been asked what your gift is? I know what mine is. I have the gift of gab. That's why I go on for an hour every Sunday, as you know. Some of the silliness in Christianity, though, is astounding. There are people in the church today that claim to have the gift of dream interpretation. I literally ran into one of those out here on the street with my car a couple years ago. Anyway, I looked at the website for dream interpretation, and here's what it said. Dreams are interesting and often puzzling. We want to understand them better if we can. We can probably interpret most dreams of our own with just a little help. Perhaps we need a few ground rules that I will share with you as we begin. Try to understand your own dreams. It's important, though, to remember that dreams were part of God's design for your health and well-being. Just like your heart or your lungs have a purpose for your body, dreams have a purpose, too. Dreams can be a connection to areas deep within yourself being worked through in ways that you could not imagine in your waking state. "'I remember going through a computer conversion once "'in which several solutions to problems "'came to me in my dreams.'" I don't want her working on my computers. "'I would wake up in the middle of the night "'and write down what I thought I was dreaming through "'and implement it the next day at work.'" Dreaming is a mechanism to connect man with God, to receive messages from him regarding our lives and our futures.'" I believe God commonly uses dreams to speak to us. For this reason alone, it's a good idea to pay attention. People who say they don't dream or don't remember their dreams are missing out and should develop a way to understand their dreams. Come on, it's just a lot of malarkey. It's just a bunch of hooey. Why do I say this? Well, because in the Bible, God only spoke to a few very select people. You cannot underestimate that God only spoke in dreams to a very select minority of believers. You can probably recall most of them, in fact. He spoke to Jacob, to Joseph, to Samuel, to Solomon, to Daniel, as we're studying, Zacharias, as we just finished studying, Joseph's stepfather of Jesus, Samuel, Solomon, uh, Cornelius, Ananias, Ananias, Peter, Paul, and John. However, With the completion of the canon, and that doesn't mean a thing that goes boom. That means the Bible. There was no need for God to use dreams or visions any longer. They receded to be a thing of the past. Let me let me ask you this: When was the last time you sent a Western Union telegram? When was the last time you even wrote a letter? You see, communication style has changed today. Today we use email, messenger, Twitter, or for those who are really initiated, Facebook. That's how we communicate with one another. Now, that is not to say the Lord couldn't speak to someone in a, in a dream if He chose to. He can communicate with anybody the way He wants, but I don't believe He's going to do that any longer. Sola Scriptura only Scripture. That's what we believe as evangelicals. No longer does God speak to man through dreams or visions. The Lord has communicated everything to us, everything to us that we need to know in the Bible. Everything we need to live godly in this present world has been put in Scripture. Now, if you have a dream that you don't understand, and you want to know what it means, you can Google dream interpretation if you want and find it. That's up to you. Well, if that is my, interpre- my introduction, would you turn with me then to Daniel chapter 7. We will pick up with verse 15. We will pick up with the interpretation of the dream that we saw the details of last week in the first 14 verses. As you will recall, Daniel couldn't make heads or tails of his own dream. But he didn't go and search for a dream interpreter, nor did he ask for a life coach for help. Now, if you need to use one of the Bibles, you can find this text on page 897 in our Pew Bible. Here we see Daniel in verse 15 sharing his emotional state. I read, As for me, Daniel my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me here is a twofold reaction by daniel to this wild dream that he has seen given to him by the lord you will notice his first reaction is of one that tells us there's a personal cost to be a conduit of the dreams of God of divine communication this is not the typical reaction that people have to dreams today no people today who claim God speaks to them in a dream has to run out and tell everybody put it on the internet start a television show or write a book right But that's not the way it was in the Old and New Testaments. People were reticent after having received a dream from God to share it. Why? Daniel tells us his spirit is distressed. He's in turmoil personally. He's filled with anxiety as he reflects on the meaning of this message that's been given to him. He just can't wrap his mind around the whole thing. His mind is alarmed, he says. The second reaction Let me ask you, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night suddenly with a start because you've had some dream? Your mind is attitude; it's agitated, I should say. It's racing and you just can't stop thinking about your dream. That's Daniel's response to this revelation from God to him. And he wants to know what it means. What does it mean? What are you saying to me, Lord? Again, sadly, Daniel has no life coach to turn to, no dream interpreter to ask for advice. How in the world did the prophets... Old, get along without a life coach. I'm just shocked. I'm feigning that, by the way. That's, that's all. You don't like that, Sue? You gave me one of those looks. No? Oh, okay. Daniel's agitated. He's confused. So he approaches, notice in verse 16, he approaches one of those who was standing by. And he began to ask him the exact meaning of all of this, So he told me and made it known to me the interpretation of these things. Daniel is living within the context of his dream, and if you look back to verse six, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter six, verse 10, you'll see that Daniel is surrounded. he's in the midst of thousands upon thousands were attending him, capital H, and myriads of myriads who were standing before him, capital H. So Daniel asks one of those standing by for help. Obviously, this one who is from the thousands of thousands and the myriads upon myriads is standing in the throne room of God in the third heavens where the ancients of days is. They were waiting there upon the Lord to be of service to him. So who is it that Daniel asked for help? Not a dream interpreter, not a life coach. He's asking an angel of the Lord. Now there's almost complete agreement on this amongst the biblical scholars and commentators that this is an angel. But which angel is it? The angel of Zomni. Is this the angel Clarence trying to earn his wings? Well, the text does tell us. I was surprised how many commentators didn't really tell the reader of their commentary this. But if you look to chapters 8 and 9, you find out who this angel is. We read in chapter 8 and verse 16, I read now, I heard the voice of a man and called out saying, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. And then over in chapter 9, verse 21, there's confirmation of this. For when Daniel was in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in my vision previously, came to me. So, the interpreter of Daniel's dream is none other than the archangel Gabriel. He's the dream interpreter that Daniel needs the archangel Gabriel reveals the meaning, as we see in our next verse, of the four beasts in his dream. We read in verse 17, Gabriel says to Daniel, These great beasts which are four in number are four kings who arise from the earth. Wow. Wow. First of all, notice that this confirms Daniel's dream, but it modifies it, if you will, by giving it a little bit more definition than we saw before. Back in verse 3 of this same chapter, notice that the four beasts came up from the sea. Do you remember? But now we see that the four beasts arise from the earth in verse 17. As I told you in the previous time we were together, the figure of the sea was illustrative of the Gentile nations. And this is just further defined for us as up people coming up out of the earth. These sea people or earth people are really Gentile nations which are morally bankrupt. The sea people, the earth people, the Gentile nations, worshipped idols and false gods. These earthly people are now contrasted with God's holy people, look with me at verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. He kind of looks down the corridor of time, past all of the four kingdoms now, and just gives you a, a synopsis of the whole deal that's taken place here. Notice that the but is contrastive. It contrasts the Gentile nations, the four nations, the four beasts which will rule the world during the times of the Gentiles with the holy nation that will come at the end of the ages in which Christ will rule over his kingdom. Currently, however, Daniel is in the midst of being dominated by the four kingdoms. Well, for him personally, the first two. The kingdom of Babylon has taken him and the Jewish people into exile, off to Babylon to be slaves. And then the Medes and the Persians came in, as you know. But there is a time coming, here's the eternal promise that was given to every patriarch, patriarch all the way back to Abraham that God was going to bring in a kingdom in which the Messiah would rule over. What a promise. That promise is still valid for you and me today. You see, if there is a kingdom, there must be a king. So it couldn't have been in 70 AD that Jesus came because he has no earthly kingdom. He's supposedly reigning in your hearts according to the liberal scholars of yesteryear and today. But that doesn't make sense. Because a king has to have a kingdom. He has to have a land. And that's what we are waiting for. We are waiting for King Jesus to rule over Israel and the world and rule from his throne in the temple in Jerusalem. So there is a fifth kingdom which will be received by the saints and it will be eternal. It will not end like the other four kingdoms did. This kingdom is given by God to who? Well, according to verse 18, to the faithful ones, the saints. Who are these saints that receive the kingdom? Are they Christians? Are they Jews? Are they Christians and Jews? Are they angels and believers? Well, the Aramaic word that is used here by Daniel and translated for us as saints Could refer to both people or angels. But it's obvious that these saints are the children of God, the people of Israel, from the context. And back in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, Moses told the nation of Israel that it was God's intention to make them a kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That never came to being. But God has always intended that the Jews have a kingdom and that they be a holy nation of priests. This could not be clear. The Davidic kingdom was promised to David and to his descendants that his kingdom would come back to being a real kingdom and that a king from the Davidic line would rule in his place. So why is Daniel being given this king, this dream now? Why is Daniel being the receiver of this information at this point in time? I believe God wanted to reassure the exiles that he was still working on their behalf despite their present circumstances. Now, that term saint is used throughout the Bible we find it in the Old Testament. We find it in the New Testament. So, saints can refer to Israel or to those in the church. However, I believe that the term saints is being used here exclusively to refer to Israel, true Israel, or the remnant, if you will, of faithful Israel. To be clear, to be clear, believers of the church age cannot be in view here. Daniel had no context in which to place the in, He didn't know what the church was. He never heard of it. It was a mystery that was still to be revealed in a time to come. So, the promises given here were to the nation of Israel, to the faithful remnant, that there was a coming kingdom that would be on earth with a king and it would be an everlasting kingdom. That must have been great news to the children of Israel who were in bondage in in a foreign country. So God revealed this to the people of Israel through Daniel to encourage them. What he's saying is that there is time coming when these kingdoms during the times of the Gentile will end and the kingdom of God will ensue. However, the bad news is contained with the good news. The bad news is they had to endure four seceding kingdoms, four empires which will rule over Israel and its people with iron fists. This is partially new to Daniel. He was aware of the first two empires, but he wasn't aware of the third and the fourth. So he stops. He stops to contemplate what God is saying through Gabriel to himself. And he says to Gabriel, hold on there for a moment. Hold on a cotton-picking minute, will you, Gabriel? Verse 19, I want to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which you told me is different from the other beasts, that it's exceedingly dreadful with teeth of iron and claws of bronze and which devours, crushes, and tramples down the remainder with its feet. Daniel says literally here, I'm not really interested in the fifth kingdom, the promised kingdom to come. What I would like you to tell me more about is the fourth kingdom. Now, some people find this a bit strange. Why would Daniel, who lived during the first and second kingdoms, not be interested in the third kingdom, but is more interested in the fourth kingdom? Why not an interest in the fifth kingdom? Well, I believe there's good reason for that. First of all, Daniel was more interested in the fourth kingdom, the last kingdom, by the way, because there was greater emphasis placed in his dream, in his revelation on that fourth kingdom. The other three kingdoms don't get as much um, time in scripture as the fourth kingdom. Secondly, Daniel was told that the fourth kingdom would be totally different than the first three. The difference was one of intensity. The fourth beast, as he has just told us in, chapter, in verse 19, would devour the whole earth instead of just conquering parts of it. And it would have teeth of iron and claws of steel. And it would totally crush and destroy all of those that it, it conquers. So Daniel asks Gabriel for more information about this fourth beast. He wants to know, now verse 20, the meaning... What is the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head? And the other horn, that little horn, which came up and before which three of them fell, namely the horn that had the eyes and the mouth uttering great boasts, which were larger in appearance than its associates, the other three. So, Gabriel, explain to me, Daniel asks, these ten kings. Are they successive or are they contemporaneous? And what about that eleventh horn, that? king that arises off the head why does it have a mouth why does it have eyes why is it so creepy he almost seems human doesn't he gabriel so gabriel explains to him the meaning of the little horn the 11th king of the fourth beast he says that he's a, he's going to say that he's an evil man who will persecute believers in the future but that he will be defeated by the lord And at the 11th horn, the little horn, the beast is not like the other horns, the other kings, and he is not content to be their co-equal. In fact, he will take over the 10 king confederacy. He will rise to power and he will overthrow all the powers of the world. He will be terrifying, Gabriel tells him. His destructive power is unbelievable. That's what's the imagery of the teeth of iron and the claws, claws of bronze. He will tear apart and crush his enemies. He will trample them under his feet. Now, this fourth beast, this fourth kingdom that is ruled over by the beast, is just like Rome of ancient times. They trampled over all the nations that they took over. They destroyed their religious worship. They took over and killed masses of people. The beast of the fourth kingdom will be just like ancient Rome, and it will be hostile to the people of God. Look with me at verse 21. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. And again, now we look forward until, until, until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So here we are told that the beast, who John will later on call the Antichrist, is vicious. He will persecute the church, the saints of God. He will, in fact, overpower them, or at least try to. Daniel sees, however, in his dream, and Gabriel explains to him that the Ancient of Days will be working on behalf of the saints. The kingdom of God, says Gabriel, belongs to the remnant of faithful Jews. And this will come to be when God... The Father, the Ancient of Days, begins to judge the enemies of God, the Church, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 23. Gabriel says, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all other kingdoms, and will devour and tread down and crush it. The enemy that is to be judged is a powerful enemy. Don't ever underestimate Satan. Don't ever underestimate Satan. And estimate the power of our enemy he is great and he is powerful we should never ignore that truth he is a defeated enemy for sure but he still has great power in this world the beast the king of the revived fourth kingdom the revived Roman Empire is different than all the other kings or kingdoms Babylon media Persia And Greece, because when it comes to an end, we learn here in this text that the kingdom of God will ensue. But up to that point, his kingdom will dominate the peoples of the earth, and he will make total war upon God's people and anyone who rebels against him. In Revelation chapter 13, we read that it was given to the antichrist to make war on the saints and to overcome them. He was given authority over every tribe, every people, every tongue and every nation. Here we see his goal through the antichrist is to dominate the world, to take over and make it his kingdom. He won't care about any about any silly rules about waterboarding. He will employ every technique to crush his opposition. He will install a one world government and a one religion government. Notice Gabriel's emphasis here in verse 24 on the origin of the beast. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise, as the eleventh after him, and he will be different from the previous ones and he will subdue three kings. This has been mentioned again and again back in chapter 2 and now. This powerful entity will arise and crush three of the the ten kings and he will take over. He will become the prominent individual, the dictator of the ten-nation confederacy. These kings then must be contemporaneous to one another. They must arise during the seven years of tribulation. But the Antichrist, the beast the king of the fourth kingdom, he will subdue the kings of the confederacy. After all, who can stand against him? He's got eyes and a mouth that illustrate he is empowered by the evil one. Now history tells us that ancient Rome was never made up of ten nations. It was not a confederacy, it was one. So this must yet be future. It has not happened as of yet. This revived Roman Empire, I suggest to you, will be made up of nations in Europe and the Middle East. This is inevitable to happen. The Muslim hordes are currently taking over Europe. Within 25 years, the French The Brits, the Germans, the Norwegians, the Swedes, and all of the others will be in the minority, and Muslims will be in the majority, and they will take over all of Western Europe and make it an Islamic republic. That's not my opinion. That is what the birth rate tells us. It's going to happen. And if we keep importing Muslims into the United States, it's going to happen here. So this ten-nation confederacy will consist of nations of Western Europe, I don't know which ten, and also of Islamic republics like Iran and Saudi Arabia and others. How that will all take shape and form, I have no idea. I just know that it will happen in the future. Now we could divide this stepping stones of the Antichrist of power into three stages. The first stage will be the arising of the little horn to power when he overpowers three of the kingdoms. Maybe he's going to take over Norway and Sweden and Holland at the same time. Who knows? Maybe it'll be France, Britain, and Belgium. The second stage happens when he takes control of the entire ten-nation coalition and he becomes their dictator. He will rule over these nations and prepare them for war with Israel. The third stage happens when he dominates the world as dictator and he installs himself as the object of worship over a nation of Israel that is now under his control. Now, first of all, when you study the scripture, you must understand that this little horn goes by a number of different names. So when you study the Bible, you're going to see In different places, different names for it. Let me share some of those with you. In the book of Isaiah, he is called the Assyrian. In Daniel, he's called a number of things, as you've already seen. The prince, the king, the beast, the one to come, the insolent king, a despicable person, and the man who wants to be God. Now, it might be stated a little bit different in your version, but that's basically the names used by Daniel. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul calls him the man of sin. And the man of lawlessness. John in the book of Revelation calls him the beast and the antichrist, as does Daniel call him the beast. So the prefix on that last name, antichrist, the prefix anti means to be against or in place of. The beast, which is arising out of the fourth kingdom, and wants to take all over all the nations will be anti-anything Christian, anything having to do with Jesus, Jesus Christ. The Antichrist is the mortal enemy of God. So, why would anyone want to follow such an evil man? Well, for a moment, just think about past history. Why would anyone want to follow Hitler? Stalin, Saddam Hussein? Or for Fidel Castro, who all the liberals have proclaimed as some righteous individual. But we know he was nothing but a killer and a murderer. These men could whip up crowds into a frenzy with their oratory. Go home and Google Hitler's speech, and you will see Hitler using the power of his oratorical abilities to convince the German people to kill 55 million people in the world. Hitler justified this killing of the mass of humanity by saying that the Germans were really the master race. Now, if you've ever seen Hitler speak in a clip, you would have recognized his ability to mesmerize the masses with his personality. Such... Such is the picture of the Antichrist that is to come. He will sway people with his personality and his abilities. He will rise seemingly from the dead, which convinces many people that he is God, in fact. So the Antichrist not only wants to be against God, but he wants to take the place of God. At some point in time during the tribulation, he will make a peace treaty with Israel. He will ensure Israel that her enemies will not attack her. He guarantees their security, and by doing so, so, he earns the support of all secular Jews. Then he endorses the rebuilding of the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which earns him the support of religious Jews." Once he moves on down the timetable of his desires of taking over the world, he will renege on both of those promises and he will send his armies into Israel where he seizes the temple and he installs an image of himself to be worshipped. He demands worship by the Jewish people. This triggers a holocaust like the world has never seen before. Matthew tells us that there will be a great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. During the last three and a half years, the Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel and all hell breaks loose on earth. As we read in verse 25, he, that is the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for time, times, and a half a time. The Antichrist will blaspheme God in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And he will make war and wear down the saints. Of course, you know this begins with the abomination of desolation. That is his picture, his person being placed into the temple and the Jews being forced to worship him. This begins the great tribulation, a time of wrath on earth, not only from God, but from Satan himself as all hell and war reigns around the globe. In Revelation, we read that there was given to him a mouth speaking against arrogant words, blasphemes, and the authority to act for 42 months And he opened his mouth and blasphemes against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. The Antichrist, the beast, the king of the fourth kingdom, empowered by his father, the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. He hates righteousness and he curses the name of God and anything to do with him. He is the ultimate deceiver. He tricks Israel and the world like a sheep, a wolf, I should say, in sheep's clothing. He convinces people that he is actually God. He ends the religious festivals of Israel and he makes the law of God illegal. Instead, he institutes his own festivals and his own laws. We see that in miniature happening today around the globe. He attacks the times and the seasons of God. He attacks the law of God because they are the instruments through which God regulates the behavior of men on earth. What's the implication of this? All right and wrong is done away with. Man can live as they are. Evil natures dictate. Practically, all celebrations having to do with Christendom and Judaism are verboten. Christmas is gone, Easter's gone, Shabbat's gone. Does this sound at all familiar with you? It should. No more singing of carols in malls or in public schools or even in your home. No setting up of creches and public places, or even in your own home. Frosty the snowman is perfectly good, but away in a manger and hark the herald angels sing, get out of here. The Easter bunny survives, but crosses and Bibles are verboten. No more calendars based on the death and birth of Christ in the classroom, the marketplace, or in the government. This is why so many of us Who are sincere believers are disturbed by the things that we see taking place in the culture today. The happy holidays rather than the Merry Christmases. This is the first step down towards eliminating Jesus Christ from the consciousness of Americans. It's the spirit of the Antichrist ruling in the hearts and the minds of the seculars. Our enemy The beast will change the times and the seasons and control the rest of the world by doing so. He will replace the law of God and the practices of celebrating important events with his own. With his own. Then the people, says Daniel, are given into his hand. They are given into his hand as he controls completely. For how long? Look at the text. Time times and a half a time. That of course is equal to three and one half years. Time is one year. Times is two years and one half of one year. This is the same description found in Daniel, the book of Revelation, and other places. Three and a half years, one thousand two hundred and sixty days, or forty-two months. They are synonymous with one another. They are half of the tribulation. Let me share a few examples with you from the Bible. Daniel tells us in chapter 12, verse 7, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all of these events were completed. There's one usage. In Revelation chapter 11, The court is outside the temple, writes John. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations that will tread underfoot, here we go, the holy city for 42 months. And in chapter 12, same book. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Same chapter, a few verses later. The woman was nourished in the wilderness, that's Israel, by the way, for a time and times and a half and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Then chapter 13 of Revelation. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemes, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. I don't care how you say it. 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, times, times and a half. It's the same thing. Three and a half years of the tribulation are given over to the beast where people are given into his hand. And yet the remnant of Israel will survive. Look at me at verse 26. This takes place when Jesus Christ comes again. The court sits in judgment of the beast and his dominion will be taken away and annihilated and destroyed forever. Listen to me now. God is not just a God of love as the liberals would want you to believe. He is a God of justice. He is the judge of the world. And at the end of the tribulation, the Father will convene his court and he will sit in judgment of the Antichrist and the beast and they will be destroyed forever. The power of the evil one will be done away with. His power and dominion ends. He is removed And the beast and the Antichrist are sent to the lake of fire. Revelation says this. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance at his coming. The beast will be seized and with him the false prophet who performs signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. There it is. It's Totally awesome, isn't it? I can't wait for Jesus Christ to rule and reign over this world. For in verse 27 we read that his sovereignty... His sovereignty and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole earth is given to the people, the saints of the highest one, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Amen. Praise the Lord. That's the day that we're looking forward to. Daniel sees the complete panorama of history, the rise and the fall of kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks and Rome, as well as the fall of the satanic kingdom that's ruled over by the Antichrist. That all comes to an end at the end of human history and the Lord reigns for a thousand years upon the earth. Isn't that what Jesus told us to pray for? or specifically told the Jews to pray for in the Gospels? Thy kingdom come. Now in the Bible, we get confused about the kingdom, don't we? We get confused about the varying aspects of it. So let me be very clear. The kingdom of God will be inaugurated after the evil one and the beasts are taken away. And the tribulation comes to an end. Jesus will reign over the world from his throne in the temple in Jerusalem. And his reign will be an everlasting reign. He will rule just as you and I have been praying for. Thy kingdom come is not like some fake mantra. We are praying for it to come literally true. Not Jesus reigning in our hearts now, as the liberals will tell you. Most of the time he's not reigning in my heart. Is he reigning in yours? I kick him off the throne all the time because I'd rather do what I want. How about you? The truth is he's only going to rule and reign in my life when my old nature is eradicated at the rapture of the church. I am reminded of what Jesus himself told Nicodemus. Do you remember that interaction? Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night. And Jesus said to him, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again by water and the spirit. He's talking about a real kingdom there, not a fake one. Not one in his heart. Paul alludes to the same thing when he says that we are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Of his beloved son. I don't see any kingdom yet, do you? You can't get a transfer on the bus from one imaginary bus to the next. We're being transferred from this kingdom down here that belongs to the evil one and is dominated by the world system to the kingdom that he will install with his son when Jesus Christ returns. Obviously, there is no kingdom on earth yet that Jesus is ruling over. I don't find any land on any map that Jesus is king over. This is all yet future. This is the glorious promise that's been made not only to us, but to the Jews as well. David was promised, as I said, that someone from his descendants would be a king that would rule over his kingdom and sit on his throne again. John in Revelation chapter 20 speaks of the kingdom that is to come. In just a few short verses, in Revelation 20, John speaks of the kingdom six times, lasting a thousand years. As you know, that is a Latin word that means millennia or a thousand years. All of these promises will be fulfilled literally to the people of God, whether they be to those believers from the dispensation of the law and those previous Or the dispensation of grace. Now, Daniel concludes this section with the exact same words he began in verse 15. I'd like you to notice that. Look at verse 15 and look at this verse, verse 28. They're the exact same words. This was a technique used by ancient writers to mark off sections in the minds of the reader. This is the closing of the section in verse 28. It's called bookending. Sort of like you have books and you have two things that hold them together, right? This is bookending. The same words or phrases open up and close a specific section. So we read here that Daniel says, at this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming and my face grew pale and I kept... I kept The matter to myself. This ends the divine revelation given by God to Daniel and interpreted by Gabriel. All of this greatly disturbed Daniel. Gabriel has explained to him the picture of evil. An evil kingdom is coming that will crush the world and try to crush Israel. Look at the effect it had on Daniel. Literally, the blood drains From his face. He is deeply troubled. He didn't want to talk to anybody about it. He didn't write down his book and publish it. He didn't search for some Hollywood guru to fill it with CGI and show everything blowing up. He kept it to himself. Daniel wasn't like the prophetic quacks of today who run to the nearest television set to speak their evils and get paid for it for you to send in your seed money to them. The prophetic and even the non-prophetic are meant to encourage believers to worship and serve the Lord, not to titillate our imaginations. So how can we apply this to our to ourselves today? Well, one cannot escape the parallels that we find between Daniel chapter 2 Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel 7, the dream given to him, both cover the same period of time called the times of the Gentiles. Both dreams indicate that Israel and her land will be ruled over by four succeeding world empires, and you know them: Babylon, the head of gold; Media-Persia, the chest and arms of silver; the third was the Grecian Empire, represented by bronze, and uh, of thighs and belly; and the last was Rome, represented by clay and iron of legs and feet. So according to Daniel, this thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ ends time. This validates the premillennial view of the Bible. We should be glad. Here's evidence in the Old Testament that the first kingdom, I'm sorry, that the kingdom of God follows the appearance of the Antichrist and his destruction and then comes into being. And as of this point, we can know for sure that both post- and amillennial views of Scripture are inconsistent with with what the Bible teaches. Secondly, this proves the kingdom of God follows the four Gentile kingdoms. It is not contemporaneous with it, so it could not have happened in 70 AD. It could not be Jesus reigning and ruling in your hearts. If that's true, then Rome should have been totally destroyed according to this scenario. But we know that Rome still exists. It's called Western civilization. The kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom that the Jews were expecting has never happened as of yet. They're still looking for their Messiah. The kingdom is Jewish-centered, Israel-centered, not church-centered in a real sense It will be a Jewish kingdom with a Jewish Messiah ruling over it. Also, the little horn, the Antichrist, cannot be the Roman Catholic Church as was so asserted by many in the past. Why? Because the little horn becomes a king, not a pope. It cannot be the pope since the pope's power has not been ended or limited after the 78 time period, which that interpretation would, re- would require. It could not be the Pope or the Catholic Church because they have not attempted to persecute the nation of Israel. It cannot be the Pope because he was not destroyed, the papacy was not destroyed, didn't even exist in 70 AD. So we... Believers should look, be looking forward to a literal kingdom and before that, the rapture of the church. Jesus Christ is coming to take us out of this world before the rapture ensues. That is our hope. That also means, for all of you who have asked me about there, there will be no signs for you to see. Quit talking about signs. There are going to be no signs before the rapture. You do not find that that is written to Israel about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns to the rapture, everybody's going to be caught by surprise, including you and me. So stop talking or looking for signs. There will be none for you to see. We live in that light today. Our task is to evangelize the world because Jesus could come for his children at any moment in time. Are you busy sharing the truth? Are you an evangelist where Christ has placed you? You are the only hope that your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers have for you to tell them Jesus Christ loves you and will save you for just believing and trusting and receiving the free gift of eternal life. Let us Leave this place, as it says above the door, you are entering the mission field. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth from Daniel 7. Help us, Lord, to be hopeful, knowing that we have a task to do. And as we share the gospel, people come to know you, meaning that the return of Christ is even sooner. Help us, Lord, to be your ambassadors. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.